On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the winner of this year's Templeton Prize, Dr. Jane Goodall, whose discoveries changed our understanding of humanity's role in an interconnected world at templeton.org. The psychotherapist Esther Perel has changed our discourse about sexuality and coupledom with her TED Talks, her books, and her podcast, Where Should We Begin? Episode after episode lays bare the theater of relationship, which is also the drama of being human. And now, in the post-2020 world, she's launching a game to catalyze at home her kind of conversation. It's also called Where Should We Begin? The singular insights in the fascinating conversation I had with Esther in 2019 speak to the flip side of social isolation, the incomparably intense experience many have now had of togetherness. And her deep understanding of erotic intelligence feels so interesting as we grapple with emergent dynamics of the human condition writ large, coupled or not, and both intimate and societal. My book and my work is about eroticism. It is about how people connect to this quality of aliveness, of vibrancy, of vitality, of renewal. And that is way beyond the description of sexuality. And it is mystical. It is actually a spiritual, mystical experience of life. It is a transcendent experience of life because it is an act of the imagination. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Esther Perel was a therapist for 20 years before she began to write about sexuality. She'd studied Jewish identity in different national contexts and focused on relationships between different minority groups in the U.S., the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. She grew up speaking multiple languages at home, above her family clothing shop in Antwerp in Belgium, a child of Polish Holocaust survivors. Both of her parents were the only people left of their families. They literally met and fell in love on a road out of the concentration camps and into freedom. I start um, almost all of my conversations inquiring about the spiritual background of someone's childhood. In my mind, that is, I understand that expansively and that can be religious formation and identity, but it's also the formative milieu of love, loneliness, loss, and I'm just really curious because you also, in your way, delve into the spiritual background of, 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 of human childhood. So I wonder how you would define and describe the, you know, the spiritual background of a human childhood with, with yours as an example, where you would start with that, what that means and how it manifests. I, I don't know where to start, actually. It's, uh, it's not like I, I know from the beginning, but I would say that it probably starts, or a moment that I kind of can remember, is me asking um, why I do not have grandparents, mm. why I do not have uncles, why there's only the four of us, why they have an accent, why I came so late, and that a lot of these very naive childhood questions uh, basically pointed to a history that was presented to me 
quite matter-of-factly. Mm-hmm. Um, I've often joked that my parents did not really have a course in child development. Right. And the things that you say to a three-year-old versus a 12-year-old, it was presented to me from the start mm-hmm. um, that they were in the camps, that they were the only people, survivors of family that came out of the camps, that uh, the others were murdered, that we were Jews, that they arrived to Belgium. Um, that they happened to be another five years illegal refugees in Belgium. All of that was presented like you talk about, um, you know, a walk in the park. It's very mm. affectless, actually. Mm. And at the same time, um, we lived in a very popular neighborhood, first in Louvain, where I was born, before we came to Antwerp. Every time we lived above the store, my parents had a little clothing store and uh, then a lesser little clothing store. Mm. And we lived amongst uh, the Flemish people and there was one Jewish family on the street and everybody knew the Jewish immigrant family right. on the street. And a few times a year we became ultra-Orthodox. <laughs> and then we reverted back to the Hasidic background of my parents. Mm. Um, we walked to synagogue for an hour and a half. We went to an Orthodox shul. My mother comes from an ultra-Hasidic, uh, aristocratic Hasidic Gera family. Right. And then we reverted back because whatever they wanted to do, they only knew one way of doing, and that was the old country way. Wow. And we completely morphed from one world into the other rather seamlessly. And I think that has definitely been a major tailoring of my um, spiritual life and my cross-cultural life. Mm. And then Um, you morphed back. And then we would come back, Uh we would morph back, and we would resume eating shrimps. (laughs) Okay. I mean, uh, literally like that. Um, Mm -hmm. We had Passover, that we had a special set of dishes that came out on Passover. My mother would clean the entire house like she had always done in her village in Poland. Mm. Um, It was, you know, a different music was put on the play, on the record player. Um, We literally traveled to another world. Um, We always spoke Yiddish and Polish and German in the house as well as Dutch and French. So that the language didn't necessarily shift and these two worlds lived side by side in a way that only we knew Mm. they can coexist it was not visible to the rest of the world Mm. there's this observation that you make um, and I, I wonder if you were already observing this when you were a child that coming out of that experience of a world of survivors that some people had not died some people did not die and Some people went on living. This really is a frame that came to me when I wrote Mating in Captivity. Really? Yes, much, much, much later. And it Mm -hmm. came in a very roundabout way where I was talking with my husband, Jack Soule, about his work with torture survivors and asking him, you know, what's the process and how do you know when a person comes back and what kind of coming back does a person do after they have been in solitary confinement for years or this, uh, away dislocated, etc. And we began discussing that, you know, there's something about when you, when you can once again take risks because it means that you are not completely trapped in a state of vigilance. When you can once again play or experience pleasure or joy, because it means that you are not completely wrapped in the sense of dread. You can't be on guard and let go. (laughs) And playfulness comes with a certain element of letting go. And as he was talking about this and his work um, at the Center for Victims of Trauma and Political Violence, I remember thinking, I said to him, 
this was what happened in Antwerp. Mm. I mean, you know, when I say two groups, it's more a metaphor than than, than right. a, a literal description. But they were the people who did not die, and they were the people who came back to life. And I right. think that that right. applies to all trauma. I really don't think uh, there's a, an exclusive monopoly on that for, for my community, but that's where I learned it. And the people who came back to life really in some sense had less survivor guilt sometimes or had suffered differently or were able to reconnect with a certain fervor that basically said, I'm not here for nothing, I'm going to make the best of it. And they understood the erotic as an antidote to death. How do you keep yourself alive in the face of adversity? And from that moment, I began to actually think my book is not about sexuality. My book and my work is about eroticism. It is about how people connect to this quality of aliveness, of vibrancy, of vitality, of renewal. Um, and that is way beyond the, the description of sexuality. And it yes. is mystical. It is mm. actually a spiritual, mystical yes. experience of life. It is a transcendent experience of life because it is an act of the imagination. Yes. And that is spirituality as well. And I feel like, you know, a huge aspect of life in this early century that you are addressing is is how in a sense we've traumatized ourselves and even our ability to love with the kind of unnatural way you talk about the modern ideology of love and also how we've how we've turned the couple into this basic unit which is unprecedented in the in the history of our species is that is that too much of a stretch yes. no 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 that, make that i analogy? i say no i say that when we lived in the community and um in that community the couple served the family and you had a couple in order to have a family to have children to have economic support companionship um and social status of course and if the couple didn't do well, it didn't really matter. I mean, it mattered a lot, but it didn't influence the, the outcome or the survival of the family. Today, the happiness of the couple is the key to the survival of the family. That is a complete first. Yeah, another way, another way you've said that I find help, you said we've merged the love story and the life story. Hmm. Sometimes I say things well. <laughs> I there was a context when I said it. I don't really, yeah. it doesn't come out like that today. But yes, it's yes. really, it's, it's, uh, I want with my partner, I want a best friend and I want someone who is intellectually stimulating and emotionally available and, compa- and sexually compatible. And, um, I want all of that with one person. And if I have to go somewhere else, I experience it as a flaw in the relationship. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a tremendous pressure. Uh, it was interesting to me to read in you that um, family therapy, in fact, once upon a time, what that would have evoked was, or couples therapy, which would have been families therapy, would be focusing on problems with children. Right. And that is very recent that it evolved into just what's going on inside the couple. Um, because as you say, this was a a pragmatic institution, an economic institution. And, you know, this notion of eroticism as distinct from mere sexuality, aliveness. Came it, through rituals. Came through rituals, okay. It, lots yeah. of rituals yeah. that celebrated, that marked life cycle transition, etc. Right. They were often celebrated in a community along a large table uh, with an extended family. Uh, you didn't necessarily go away with your partner alone right. to celebrate something that isn't necessarily seen as private. Um, 
you know, the, the marriage lived in the center. It was one central relationship, but it lived in the midst of an aggregation of other intimate, powerful connections with their own sense of duty, obligation, etc. The priorities were quite clear. None of this had to be negotiated and discussed on a daily basis as it is now. Right. We have unprecedented freedom, but we don't have. We, we are far more unmoored, and uh, everything has to be talked about because there is no preceding agreement. Right. So we have less. We have more freedom. We have more uncertainty. And interestingly, in the places where people have too much of the atomization, they talk about belonging and loneliness all the time. Yeah. And in the places where people know everything that's happening at the neighbor's house and you can hear every fight and every frolic, uh, people talk about how they can create some sense of agency over their own life. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we um, want the best of both. <laughs> we want the best of both. Um, you know, another thread that I see in your life is that you actually got involved in street theater and puppetry, right? When you were in Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like now something you do is you are involved in the theater of relationships and the theater of sex, love and marriage and and um and I feel like you're also making visible in a public way something that in fact is very organic but we haven't made visible in a public way that that the drama of our relationships is the drama of our lives. And there's something you wrote. You, you talked about how the challenge of sexual intimacy is bringing home the erotic. It is the most fearsome of all intimacies because it is all-encompassing. It reaches the deepest places in us and involves disclosing aspects of ourselves that are invariably bound up with shame and guilt. So we're not just talking about naked bodies. We're talking about naked souls. And that, in fact, is the territory we've wandered into if we want to have <laughs> marriage and relationship the way we say we want to have them, which is – and really, where should we begin? Your podcast kind of lays that bare, one couple after the other. I mean, that, that's one thing it does. I think you said it very beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I always thought that, that people's suffering should not be always so hidden. But that it was a legacy from home. I, I thought, you know, so many years did my parents suffer and everybody else. And it's like the degree of aloneness that you can experience, you know. Mm. And uh, sometimes I have some of that sense in my room. People come and uh, and I'm thinking... It's not what they're experiencing. It's the fact that they're experiencing it completely alone. Yeah. It's compounded. Um, it's not that I just wanted to do to exhibitionism and, and invite a, a bunch of voyeurs to listen in on sessions. It's because I actually think that when you listen deeply, deeply to the experiences of others, you stand in front of your own mirror and you transcend that aloneness. Yes. Um, and I have always said the best theater in town was couples therapy. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychotherapist Esther Perel. And you use this phrase, um, erotic intelligence, um, right? And I, so I, I want to I talk about that because I, I kind of feel like what you're doing, I mean, 
it's very clear to me, and I'm not the only person who sees this, that we we have a very small toolkit of forms of intelligence in public life, right? In our life together, in what we, in how we speak, uh, in, in official places. Um, we, have, we have kind of factual intelligence, which is so limited and so so open to interpretation, and we don't have great emotional or social intelligence in our in our shared life. And I, I think this this notion of erotic intelligence is another thing that you would add that actually is much bigger than sexual intelligence. So, you one thing you you've read you wrote is sex is a language. Is it it isn't just a behavior, and it's the poetic of that language that I'm interested in, which is why I began to explore this concept of erotic intelligence. So so talk to me about what that is, both within and beyond the confines yeah, yeah. of a couple. So I will be really honest with you. When I first came up with the term, um, my husband came up with the term, and it was a spoof. We thought there is, you know, um, <laughs> IQ, there right, is e, right. okay, there is there emotional intelligence, yeah. and we just thought, this Why is erotic, erotic intelligence. intelligence. Right. And right. then it became a concept that I actually had to define. <laughs> You know, at first I just thought it, I understood it intuitively. Yeah. But really, there was no, nothing, you know, substantive and scientific behind it. Yeah. I, I did understand that animals have sex. It is the instinct, it is the base. But we have an erotic mind. And in that erotic mind, it is infinite. And eroticism thrives on the, the, the ritual and the celebration and the infiniteness of our imagination and. It, and on the forbidden, for that matter, too. There's a el- transgressive element in that. And that's part of why I became so interested in the, the how do you integrate this force into the domestic life that right. we also want? What is this dual sets of needs that we grapple with? Um, right. So this really gets at what is kind of existentially important and civilizationally at stake in the fact that as you also are out there saying we have a crisis of desire. The, the irony that we have the kind of the baby yes. boom generation that gave rise to sexual liberation and, and yet it is now kind of headline news that, um, that interest in this is waning and conflicted and people are not having enough sex and the, the complexity of desire. Because desire is to own the wanting. That's one way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. And in order to own something, there needs to be a sovereign self that is free to choose. And, of course, feels worthy of wanting and feels worthy of receiving. That's why desire is so intimately connected with the sense of self-worth. In the boomer generation, my question was, and that's kind of when I began mating, but we are so much further along now on that crisis of desire. It was, you know, why does this group of people, this generation that for the first time has contraception in their hand, premarital sex as a given, all in the West, of course, the permission to do what they want, and they don't feel like doing it, or at least not with each other. How come? That was kind of one my beginning question. And I understood that people no longer come to couples therapy or to sex therapy, more accurately, because they have problems of functioning and behavior and, and pain. All of that is still there. But we all know in our field that there's a whole new set of issues that has to do with the crisis of desire, of wanting. And how do you want the person that you love also? And how do you want the person with whom you want a set of other things that have to do with what love brings, that is about familiarity and about closing the gap and not having such tension? And 
and creating family. Right. And right. that becomes really interesting. How do you continue to be curious next to somebody that you've lived with for 25 years and not think that you know already everything about them? And and again, as you say, that so on the one hand, you can talk about ways, but this is really work of the imagination. I mean, it's... it's um, so having... Having walked down this new path in the history of our species where we expect and need these central relationships in our lives to give us so much, one of the things you're saying, you're saying many things, is that we're actually driven Mm -hmm. back to work to understand ourselves better, right? To unlock our imaginations. But also, I mean, I think what you're saying when owning the wanting, we have to get conscious about what it is we're wanting, right? Which is a new requirement. So the question I ask sometimes mm-hmm. is, um, I turn myself off by, right. or I turn myself right. off when, which right. is not the same as what turns me off is, yeah. or you turn me off when. Yeah. And this was a dear colleague of mine who passed away recently, Gina Ogden, who gave me that question. It was so clear, because if I turn myself off, what do people say? I turn myself off when I don't take time for myself, when I am bloated, when I eat too much, when I'm worried about my children, when I fret about money, when we are angry, when we haven't had a moment to be together, when we don't talk about anything, when I feel disconnected from my body, when I'm critical of my body, etc., etc. It has nothing to do specifically with sex. It has to do with shutting down. And when you ask people, I turn myself on, all the answers are about aliveness. I turn myself on when I listen to music, when I dance, when I play music, when I go out with friends, when I take care of myself, when I'm in nature, when I climb the mountain, when we play together, when we have time to just lounge. It's about a quality of aliveness. It's about p- the permission to feel good. Mm-hmm. And that comes with self-worth as well. And from that place, if you approach me, I will respond because I am, mm-hmm. I, I'm in the same zone as you and vice versa. Yeah, here's some um, other language you wrote. Eroticism thrives in the space between the self and the other and that we must be able to tolerate this void and its pall of uncertainties, which also makes sense to me. I mean, faced with the unknown of our partners, we can either be anxious And this is true with the unknown of life. We can be anxious. We can want to close the gap. We can want to seek the familiar in that space. Or we can leave that space open and respond to it with curiosity. And I can tell you, every couple in my office, I know exactly, you know, where they are on that continuum. It's not an either or, but you know if people are welcoming the unknown in their midst or if they are more in need of solid, familiar, predictable grounding. And it also has to do with their histories and their childhoods. Right. right. I don't, I am, you know. There's that unfortunate fact again. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But it, it creates a different orientation to couple them as well, not just to life. Right. I think we haven't just named this kind of fundamental tension that is in us um, that is at the root of this that thing that we've been talking about, which which you write about so wonderfully that and this is just true again in 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 every way about being human, this need and desire we have for security and predictability and permanence and being anchored, and at the same time, this need and desire that can compete with that. And it seems like in a relationship is, well, I guess I mean I feel like at best at in a dance with that, 
is novel this need and for novelty and adventure and mystery and risk and the unknown to me this dual sets of fundamental human needs is is a is the basis for which i look at a lot of things um i look at it in life you know i look at it in terms of life stages i look at it mm-hmm. certainly inside um mm-hmm. inside relationships and and how we reconcile these two fundamental needs that often spring from different sources and pull us in different directions and i also think that love and desire belong a little bit to both of these sets of human needs as well right um so they relate and they also conflict and herein lies the mystery of eroticism After a short break, more with Esther Perel. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychotherapist Esther Perel. She's famous for her presentations, her books, and her podcast on sexuality and couples therapy, Where Should We Begin? And she's just launched a game designed to catalyze that question in other spheres of life. We've been talking about a fundamental tension in human life as it shows up in her work— our elemental need for safety and predictability alongside our desire for novelty, adventure, mystery, and risk. I interviewed Esther in 2019, and it's fascinating to revisit now amidst all the ways 2020 and beyond has brought matters of the human condition and of togetherness into relief, societal as well as intimate. For all that is... uh going on in the world that is that feels, you know, like we're becoming more primal rather than moving forward. I also do feel that we're on this new frontier and we're on it in neuroscience and we're on it in evolutionary biology and I think we're on it in, in you know, you're bringing it in couples therapy that we're actually reckoning with our with our humanity in a new way that we're kind of forced to do this. Um, that naming that tension, right? And really investigating how does it turn up, not just, as you say, in a relationship, but in stages of our lives. And how can we be more conscious of it and work more creatively and, and, you know, imaginatively with it? It's quite amazing that we are having this conversation and working these things out in in all these concrete situations. But, you know, I am trained in... In general systems theory, I'm a systemic yeah. family therapist, yeah. and I remember, you know, when that paradigm first entered me, this notion that every living organism straddles stability and change yeah. in nature, in companies, in societies. If you change all the time, 
you go chaotic. You dysregulate and you become chaotic and you may dissolve, disintegrate. If you don't change at all, you fossilize, you go stale, and you may also disintegrate. And sometimes you don't choose it because if, if you, right. your whole village is destroyed in a second right. by a tsunami, you have had such amount of massive change, you are dysregulated. You know, you, the, the, the society is dysregulated, the whole environment, the, all of that. So this image for me, I can take it from nature into technology. When I go to places where people are celebrating in an evangelical way the disappearance of everything that was and the replacement, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking, oh, la, 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 la. Right, and then when right. I go to places that just like sentimentalize the 19th century, I also say, oh, la, 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 because it, it is that interdependent dynamic balance between these two that is where we really live. Um, we want certain things with technology, but we also want to stay connected to a certain kind of experience of our humanity. And I have to say, I'm very, very happy that I work on the side of helping people connect. Yeah. Um, connect, with, endless. Connect, connect with quality, right? <laughs> but, connect you know, with quality. We talk about our, our yeah. connection economy. Yeah, yeah with we, style. We can, we're connected, <laughs> but we're not a connected with the no, quality. No, no, connect That's with what you're quality. Doing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, for mm -hmm. in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of unusual situations... Yeah, and you know, so I, I did want to I did want to muse on this with you that there are a lot of big statements right now about how loneliness is the crisis of modernity, and you know, the fact that we are each alone inside ourselves is the ancient condition, right? And the existential uh, quandary, and and I think it's like, are you lonely, or do we know how to be? Can we inhabit solitude also as a um, as a life giving? part of being alive. Do you know the concept of ambiguous loss? Yes, yes. I've had, Paul, do you know Pauline Boss? Who, yes, you that's had her who on I show. took the, yeah. okay, so yeah. I totally borrow that concept from her, but yes. I bring it into the conversation on loneliness. Mm -hmm. Because I think what you're highlighting is so important, about, you know, the difference between a kind of a fundamental acknowledgement of our existential aloneness is not the same as a feeling of loneliness in a sense of feeling dispensable, disposable, yes. uh, not good enough, not surrounded enough, uh, having to go through things alone that one shouldn't have to go through alone and things like that. Yeah. And I think those are two different levels of experience. I, I like the concept of ambiguous loss because I think that it's a, actually a, it, a good description of the kind of new form of loneliness that I think we are often describing. Ah. You know, ambiguous, ambiguous loss, loss as, says, a, as a cultural, as a, as yes, a cultural yes. phenomenon. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, to, to explain, ambiguous loss is, for example, when a person is still physically present but psychologically gone, as if when they have Alzheimer's, for example. Or if you have someone who disappeared, they are physically gone but psychologically present. In both cases, you cannot resolve the question of mourning and loss because you don't mm -hmm. know, are they here or are they not here? Mm -hmm. When people describe to me 
being put on pause in a conversation or lying next to someone in bed who is scrolling through their Instagram right. feeds and is physically present but psychologically gone um, or is having literally a, a, another life with their phones. What they're describing is not the physical isolation of loneliness. They're describing a loss of trust and social capital that they are experiencing next to the very person with whom they should not be feeling alone. Yes, I mean, That's ambiguous there is loss. nothing lonelier than the inside of a bad marriage, right? There is nothing lonelier than the loneliness that you feel when you are next to someone with whom you think that you once did not feel lonely. Mm. And I will go even further. That one we know. The one we know less about is the loneliness of actually living in a marriage in which you may even be loved and you may be a cherished spouse, but you remain a famished lover. Mm. And that's a kind of sexual loneliness where you know you are loved, but you haven't felt right. wanted in years. And you, um, I mean, one of the things you teach is that passion will wax and wane, but that it can also be resurrected. I mean, the idea is that, you know, Passion is like the moon, right? It has intermittent eclipses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this notion that it just people will live in a permanent state of passion, no, of course not. Right. I mean, nobody would go to work for that matter. <laughs> um, but people don't want to experience passion. People want to experience a sense of aliveness. And it is what they describe also when they transgress. It, that, what is that aliveness? It feels it's hope, it's possibility, it's freedom. Right. Right. You have said that you believe that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our life. And I, I believe that, too. And I um, and and people have said of of your podcast, where should we begin, that it is a public service. So I want to spend a couple of minutes and this may just be stretching things, but I feel like there are applications to what you are teaching and what you know to our life together. I have this thesis that I've been kind of playing around with, speaking with people, is that, um, you know, that I, I want us to think about I, actually this erotic energy, right? This aliveness and love as it actually works, as opposed to as a romantic ideal, that we actually possess a lot of intelligence in our intimate lives. And I don't just mean couples, but, you know, with our family and friends and the people we love writ large. You know, we don't confuse love with likeness and harmony. Like, I, I feel like we, for me, a question for public life right now, which is very close to the question that you work with with couples, is like, can we get interested in each other again? Do you ever think about that, kind of applying what you know about how love and erotic uh, intelligence actually work to life together? I do. I, um, how am I going to put this? Um, Eric Fromm, long time ago, was actually quite a visionary. He wrote in the 50s. But what he was very capable of saying is that we think that love is easy and that finding the right person is what is difficult. Right. Um, that it's the love object that is complicated, but the, the experience itself of loving. Um, and of course, he turned it on its head. Um, that love is a verb, that it's not a permanent state of enthusiasm, and that it's an actual practice 
and and that that practice gets repeated all the time. Now, I have added a few, actually, I think I even... Love isn't something natural, I think he said. Rather, it requires discipline, concentration, patience, faith, and the overcoming of narcissism. It isn't a feeling, it is a practice. Right. I prefer to say it's a verb because verbs have, are action um, oriented. What I liked about that idea was, and I would add to it, is that there's an element of risk. To have a fierce kind of intimacy, you have to be able to take risks. And the risk is that not everything about you will be liked by your partner. I think that one of the strange concepts of the the romantic ideal is unconditional love. Yeah. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, doesn't exist, never existed for that matter. Love is conditional completely. <laughs> Um, it's not a popular idea. I but, know. It's, uh, I, find, I find it so refreshing for you to say that. I stand by it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like you do things that are that are lousy. There is absolutely no reason that I should just continue to love you bes- mm-hmm. despite it. No. In a way, I think we are demanding too little. Even strangely, mm-hmm. like we demand all kinds of things that I don't know <laughs> about. Uh, you know, soulmate for me is God. It's not another person. And some people have that connection. But it's so few. You know, right. for the majority right. of people... Um, as I have also said, you pick a partner, you pick a story. What story do you want to write? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and do you do you have enough freedom to choose the story that you want to write? That's the next thing. Um, write often and edit well, but mm-hmm. it is a story. So now, in that story, there are things about you that will not be liked by your partner. And I like fierce intimacy is when you see people who tell you there are certain things about their partner that drive them utterly yes. crazy and yes. always have and will never change. Yes. You know, right. that I never discuss with him. We will never talk about that. Right. If I, so much of love is deciding what you will not talk about or what you will not talk about now because you actually want to be heard. That's right. Mm-hmm. And therefore, find somebody else with whom you can actually have that conversation. And, you know, it's a different way of conceiving it. I, it works for me. I mm-hmm. understand, When I say the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives, because I do think that the bonds and the connections that we forge with others give us a greater sense of meaning and happiness and well-being than just about any other thing, when it's good, because it can be exactly the opposite. Huh? Right, right. Um, and... Now it's like, what, what? how much are you investing in your relationships? And I find that often people don't. You know, they talk about my partner is my best friend and they treat him like shit. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they talk about my friend and they haven't seen that person or talked to that person in years. It's like, no, you can't just do it like that. You can't be lazy. You can't be complacent about this and put all your energies at work and bring the leftovers home and all of that stuff. Or, or, or you know, I, I have this question I've been playing with lately and I just asked it in Sydney. I was like, how many of you go to bed and the last thing you touch is your phone. Okay, stand up, right? <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. And how many of you, the first thing you stroke in the morning when you wake up is your phone. Okay, yeah. stand up. And how many of you are doing this while there actually is another person lying next to you in bed? Yeah. That's ambiguous loss, by the way. Yeah. I'm like, seriously? Yeah. Seriously? And then, <laughs> so that's what uh, I'm trying to, to address at this point. It's like, 
Interestingly, we don't look at relational health enough. We don't connect it to mental health. We don't connect mm-hmm. it to our overall physical health. And we certainly don't connect it enough to our societal health. Right. If we want to really b- go, go bigger. It's not the freedom that is our problem. It's not the fact that we have choice. But they have always gone together with responsibility, with accountability. And what happens is that the people who talk about freedom don't talk about accountability enough, and the people who talk about accountability don't talk about freedom. So the whole thing gets polarized rather than integrated. Yeah, Politically, then, it is like that, and mm-hmm. in the psychological field, it is like that. It's like that all, all the time. And that power, that life force of imagination is lacking, too, in, in, in all of those either ors that life yes yes because i think that one of the losses of this moment is the loss somewhat of our intuition Mm. you know there is a different kind of knowledge and information that is much more data driven that is systematized that tries to be rational and that is taking away our ability to sense things, to be in an iterative process of relationships and to and to suss out, you know, the, and to live with ambivalence. I think that yes, that yes. great product of our imagination, you know, what is intuition? It is a non-judgmental way to actually assess another person that is not rational, uh, but that is driven by the meaning that that person has for us. Mm-hmm. And that form of knowledge is not as popular these days, yeah. or certainly not in the West. And I think that it is a fundamental piece of knowledge that people need to have in relationships. Because when you don't have that, then you're left just dealing with borders and consent and rules and things like that, yeah. rather than, you know, the ability to play because it is ultimately to play. We're back with, at play. Um, yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. I think it is the essential, mm-hmm. you know, if I had to say what's one, you said curiosity at first, mm-hmm. and I would say play, but play and curiosity are so intimately interwoven. Those are probably two of the most central elements, imagination, playfulness, curiosity, mm-hmm. um, which go with risk. Risk is when, you know, when... I would say play is when risk is fun, but you can't play when you are in a situation of danger, anxiety or contraction. So you have to feel safe in order to play. But if you do not play, you won't experience the erotic. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with psychotherapist Esther Perel. So I think, you know, you're, we're winding down, and, and I think you're getting, you're pointing back at this, you know, what this erotic in, intelligence is, what this life force is that, that is so important in a relationship, but in fact in in aliveness. And, you know, I just I wanted to ask you, you know, we are now living in this world where people have long, long lifespans and many different chapters um, where it's not just that this ideal of finding the soulmate and living with them happily ever after doesn't work. It's just that life, I mean, even if you find that soulmate, um, you may still have, you may be married for 40 years and then have 20 or 30 years alone. One thing that feels important to me as I get older is 
really taking delight in the many, many forms of love in my life, right? My friendships, that some of that same energy, you know, I, I, that, that word eroticism is so closely associated with sex, but I, you know, and I, I even feel like, you know, what love can look like in, in public, in civic life. But, you know, when people are engaged in revolutionary movements, they feel erotic. Yes. Yes, you're so right. I really think it's so important to understand that eroticism narrowed down to the pure sexual meaning is a a real reduction of what the word stands for. Yeah. Um, it, It is about, it's a transgressive force. It is about breaking the rules. That is erotic, and you know, it, because it it takes you outside of the borders of reality and the limitations of life. Mm-hmm. Um, if we didn't have that, we couldn't be living. Yeah. It's it's that fundamental. And whenever it gets just brought into the sexual realm, it really loses its richness and its meaning. Why people, you know, need that? And yes, you want the love of. You know, this idea that the romantic relationship is the penultimate, the one in which people will feel, you know, this complete self-actualization and and the best version of themselves. No, people Mm. sometimes the best version of themselves is not in their romantic relationships. Right, right. It's in their relationships to their employees or to their mentees or to their friends. And especially in a moment where the community structure isn't there to hold us, it is the multiplicity of these different relational arrangements that really has to become the foundation for many of us. And if you have a hierarchy of relationships, if you call some people single and some people partnered, for example, you know, the partnered person of today may not be tomorrow and wasn't maybe yesterday. And the single person of today will be partnered tomorrow. What kind of a distinction is this at this point? You know, Um, it doesn't fit anymore. We go in and out of many, many different kinds of relationships. And, you know, I've... I finished one day uh, one of the TED Talks with this line that where I said many of us these days are at least going to have two or three marriages or committed relationships in our lifetime. And some of us will do it with the same person. Yeah. And yeah. those people who do it with the same person, that is erotic intelligence. Right, right. Because they're able to reinvent themselves on location and to create a new relational arrangement with each other. And... If you cannot do it with each other, you'll go do it somewhere else. But you need to do it because if not, you die. That is the if yeah. you don't change to continue to stay alive and and it involves novelty. But novelty is not about new positions. You know, that's what people then end up thinking if you're talking about sexual yeah. but no. Novelty right. is new experiences of yourself in the world and of your partner in relationship to mm. you if you're talking about a partner. Mm. But if not, it's new experiences of yourself in the world. And that involves taking risks, having an active engagement with the unknown, as Rachel Butzman calls it. It's, you know, And when people do it, there's a sense of purpose, there's a sense of aliveness, there's a sense of joy, there's a sense of transmission. There's no age. There is no age, mm. you know, mm. in, in the chronological mm. right. sense, right. because you are yeah. in touch with life. Yes. Um, I do want to ask you this question, um, and I don't ask everybody this question because it's it's enormous, but just how would you begin, given the life you've lived, the things you care about and see, how would you begin right now to answer the question of what you've learned about what it means to be human? 
I think that what it means to be human, for, there are many ways to answer it, but what comes up for me immediately is we all come into this world with a need for connection and protection and with a need for freedom. And from the first moment on, we will be straddling these two needs. What mm. is me and what is us? You know, the common parlance today is I need to first work on myself. I need to first feel good about me or, you know, solve me before I can be with somebody else. And I find that also a strange thought. You know who you are. You know, you discover who you are in the presence of another. Um, mm. And so this constant dance between me and you, between I and thou, is at the core of being human. What right do I have to do for me when it hurts you? How much can I ask for me and not give to you? How much do I give to you until I feel that I have not given enough to myself? Um, how much do I make sure not to lose you but lose me in the process? Or how much do I have to hold on to me but lose you in the process? That tension, that dance for me um, is very much at the core of being human. Freedom and responsibility, which probably is kind of the core of existentialist thinking. Esther Perel has a private couples and family therapy practice in New York. She hosts two podcasts, Where Should We Begin? and Housework. She's also the author of two TED Talks and two books, Mating in Captivity and The State of Affairs. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.